This week to the Critique podcast, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Edward Walter. Ed is an intensivist and anaesthetist from England, working at the Royal Surrey County Hospital. Ed has several publications in exertional heatstroke and is the lead author on the position statement on this topic by the Faculty of Sport and Exercise Medicine. Recently, Ed has presented on this topic at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and at various marathon and hospital meetings around the south of England. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Thank you for inviting me. Welcome. So, over recent years, the concept of the extreme athlete, uh, it's fair to say, has become mainstream. For example, in the Ironman series, there's been a 200% increase in competitors in just the last three years. Some have questioned any long-term damage of such extreme exercise. Hey, can I start by asking you to explain what is meant by the term exertional heat stroke? So, heat stroke by itself is part of a spectrum of heat illness, where the body essentially generates more heat uh, than it can get rid of. Heat stroke is the most severe form of this spectrum of, um, of heat illness, where the body's temperature is very high, usually 40 degrees or, or higher than that. And for a diagnosis of heat stroke, there has to be some abnormal CNS function as well. So we usually see patients who are drowsy or confused, or patients who are having seizure or comatose. There are two types that they find. There's a classical heat stroke, um, which usually occurs in heat waves, and it tends to affect very young or older people or patients with, um, with medical problems. The other type is um, this term exertional heat stroke, which, as the name suggests, occurs in patients who are exerting themselves. So we'd often see it in endurance athletes or patients or people working in hot conditions, so the firemen and the military, and it has been reported in, in riot police as well. The definition varies a little bit, but in the UK, the Faculty of Sports and Exercise Medicine define heat stroke as a core temperature above 40 degrees, but alongside some CNS abnormality as well. Okay, so is there a specific clinical diagnostic test for this? And if not, when and how should we suspect it? So there isn't a specific test. Um, It's a clinical diagnosis. I think the diagnosis is often difficult for several reasons. First of all, runners often don't feel great at the end of a race anyway, so it's sometimes difficult, I think, for the athletes uh, and the medical staff to know whether this is just a runner having exerted themselves or whether there's a specific medical problem as well, like heat stroke. I think the second reason why the diagnosis is often difficult is that there's lots of other conditions that we often see in endurance athletes. Uh, We often see water or electrolyte imbalance. We sometimes see what we term exercise-associated collapse, which is a benign collapse, uh, similar to a vasovagal collapse, and all of these can coexist with, uh, with heat stroke. So heat stroke, I think, can be missed that way. I think a third reason why the diagnosis is difficult is that even if the core temperature is raised, patients often vasoconstrict in heat stroke. That's probably part of the reason why the core temperature is so high. So if you examine someone with heat stroke, their skin often feels normal or cool, and I think the diagnosis can be missed that way. I think it leads on to an important point that if you you look after someone with with heat stroke, you have to measure a core temperature rather than a peripheral temperature. The peripheral temperature may be several degrees lower than the core temperature, and it might give you um, a false uh, false negative Unfortunately, the most reliable and the easiest way to measure a core temperature, certainly in the field, is, uh, is with a rectal thermometer. So in answer to your question, I don't think there's a specific diagnostic test, and there are several reasons why the, diagnose, the, the diagnosis is often missed. 
I think that means that the medical staff have to have a high index of suspicion in any athlete who doesn't recover very quickly after a race, always behaving abnormally or oddly. I think you should have a low threshold for measuring a core temperature in any athlete who looks unwell or collapses uh, after a race. Athletes are usually very keen to go home after a race, of course, and even if they um, don't feel back to normal, they're keen to go home and, and sleep it off. And we often have spotters at the finishing line of the bigger races, so that anyone who doesn't look right or looks a bit abnormal or is stumbling or collapsing get taken from the finishing line across to the medical tent uh, for medical assessment. Okay, so we're trying to spot them early. So data suggests that the, the incidence of exertional heat stroke is increasing. In your opinion, do you feel that this is due to greater awareness of the syndrome, as, as, as you've just talked of, or is it an increase in the number of extreme athletes, or is it a, a different factor entirely? You're right, I think that the incidence is increasing, and I think there are several reasons for that. I think you're right that there's greater awareness, uh, both among the medical staff and the athletes uh, as well. There's a lot more people taking part now in athletic events than there were previously. I've got some data from America on that, and they said that in uh, 1976, so coming up to 40 years ago now, there were about 25,000 runners who completed a marathon, and that's gone up a lot in the last uh, last few years. So in 2000, there were 350,000 runners. Uh, and in 2009, um, there were almost half a million marathon runners. So the number of marathon runners has gone up, it seems, by about 20-fold uh, in the last 40 years. I think the incidence is increasing. Um, there's some data from the American military, and they've said that the race of soldiers being hospitalised has gone up from about 2 per 100,000 in 1981 to not far off 15 per 100,000. So again, gone up eightfold uh, in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So, Eddie, you're able to comment on the influence that ambient temperature may have on the influence of this condition. As you know, many of our listeners are in the southern hemisphere, the warmer climates. Should they be even more vigilant for exertional heat stroke? So the ambient temperature is important, but so is the humidity. And certainly the warmer and the more humid the conditions, the, the higher the risk. There's a calculation called the wet bulb globe uh, temperature index, which takes into account the temperature and the humidity and the wind chill. And the higher the temperature index, the more at risk the runners are. So it's not just the temperature, it's other factors as well that are important. Having said all that, we've seen heat stroke in runners where the ambient temperature was close to, uh, to zero degrees, where we weren't expecting heat stroke. So I think we need to be aware that it can happen in cold conditions, cold conditions as well as in warmer conditions as well. Okay. So let's say we have a marathoner and we have uh, diagnosed uh, exertional heat stroke. Um, what's, what's the mainstay of treatment? So the mainstay of treatment is to cool the athlete down as quickly as possible. And certainly in America, and I'd like to see it over here as well, the heat stroke should be seen as a, as a medical emergency. A temperature above 40 for even a short period of time uh, can cause multi-organ dysfunction. And there was one study that shows that if your temperature is higher than 39 after one hour, there's a higher risk of death than if it was lower than that or for a shorter period of time. So the priority is to cool people down as quickly as possible. And that means cooling them as soon as they present to the healthcare team. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be acceptable to transfer people to hospital first without cooling them uh, from the finishing line. 
There is a risk that the athlete's temperature falls too far or too quickly and become hypothermic. So we would aim to get the temperature down to about 38.5 or certainly below 39 uh, as quickly as possible, but no lower. Okay, so a lot of our listeners would be familiar with cooling techniques within the intensive care unit, but how do you cool in the field? People have looked at different ways of cooling. Uh, the most effective seems to be to immerse the person in a bath of cold water, but obviously that may not be very practical. If you douse the patient with water and fan them at the same time, that seems to be almost as efficient, and it may be uh, much easier to do. So we tend to use ordinary plant sprayers and fans, and we often see the temperature fall by several degrees very quickly over the first half an hour or hour or so of treatment. We know that ice by itself, ice packs and so on, are much less effective than the plant sprayers and the fanning. We think we should measure the temperature continuously, um, and it's important to see the effects of the treatment, and also, as I say, to stop the person becoming hypothermic. There's some interesting work coming out recently that suggests that um, some of the hypothermias, including heat stroke, may be a, a kind of pro-inflammatory condition. And there's some interesting work suggesting that it may be being made worse by bacterial gut bacteria being absorbed from the gut, and causing almost like a, a SERS response, so in some ways similar to, uh, similar to sepsis. And because of that, people looked at anti-inflammatory drugs, steroids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but none of these seem to make much of a difference in terms of the outcome. Non-steroids are probably bad anyway because of the risk of renal damage in the endurance athletes, and we probably wouldn't recommend non-steroidals to anyone, um, and certainly not recommended for people with heat stroke at the moment. People have looked at paracetamol as well, and that probably also isn't a useful drug for, uh, for patients with heat stroke. We know that the antipyretic drugs work by lowering the set points of the hypothalamus, almost like turning the thermostat down if it's been set too high uh, by the infection. But it's a different mechanism in heat stroke. The thermostat, or the hypothalamus, is still set to normal. It's just that there's more heat being produced than the body can get rid of. So it wouldn't really make much sense for paracetamol to have much of an effect reducing mm. the temperature. Sure, sure. Um, I, I read with interest, it's mentioned in the position statement, that following just a single episode of exertional heat stroke, there's greater risk of further events. Um, do you think there's a physiological explanation to that? I haven't got a complete answer for you on that. Uh, we know that some people are more at risk of heat stroke than others, so it may be that genetics and risk factors play a part in that or that just some runners are, are more predisposed than others uh, to it. Or it may be that if you have one episode of heat stroke, it causes some kind of biochemical change that makes it more likely um, that you get a, another episode, almost like being sensitised to it. Or it may be that uh, patients, once you've had an episode of heat stroke, you then can't adapt so well to heat in the future, which puts you at further risk, of course, of another episode of, um, of heat illness. There are tests for heat intolerance. You could exercise people in standard conditions or an exercise bike and measure how quickly the temperature rises. And obviously the quicker the temperature rises, the less heat tolerant um, these people are. And it may be that these sorts of tests will become more useful in the future for advising athletes how they can exercise and the risks of heat stroke that are specific, uh, specific for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about the sequelae of exertional heat stroke? What are the long-term effects? 
So we can talk about the immediate uh, sequelae, then the short-term and long-term features of heat stroke. So patients with heat stroke will present with some kind of CNS abnormality, so confusion, disorientation, or drowsiness, or coma, as part of the as part of the definition. And there are some events now, not so much in the UK but elsewhere, that recommend that you run with a partner. And if you become confused or, or disorientated, then you're automatically told to stop running. The confusion is probably due to several things. We know that the cerebral metabolic rate um, is higher in people with heat stroke. And probably the cerebral blood flow is lower as well. As I say, there's been some interesting work that um, looking at gut bacterial absorption and it may be that the blood-brain barrier is more permeable so some of the endotoxins and pathogens around the body are now able to enter the brain and cause the, uh, cause the confusion that we see. Patients are at risk of cerebral edema so a lot of patients when they present at the finishing line or when they come to A&E often need sedating because they're agitated or if they're drowsy or having a fit they may well need intubating and ventilating. If we do anaesthetise patients, we always avoid succinamethonium because there's probably an association between heat stroke and MH, malignant hypothermia. Sodium and potassium levels are usually pretty normal, and that's probably because the, uh, the guidance, the fluid guidance that we give to athletes has changed recently. The old advice from 10, 15 years ago or so was to drink as much as you wanted. And as I say, 10, 15 years ago, we saw lots of hyper and hyponatremia, so salt levels being too high and or too low. The current advice is to drink only when you're thirsty, and it does seem that in the last couple of years, the incidence of abnormal sodium, potassium, uh, electrolyte levels uh, is much lower. So if you examine these patients, they're usually tachycardic and are often hypotensive as well. I think there's several reasons for that. Patients with heat stroke are usually paradoxically peripherally vasoconstricted. So if you feel their skin temperature, it often feels pretty normal, which might be uh, falsely reassuring. So it means you've got to do a, a core temperature measurement on these patients rather than just relying on a peripheral temperature. If you do Doppler studies or an echo on these patients, you usually see a hyperdynamic circulation with a high cardiac output. Um, but there are cases reported of patients with heart failure um, and pulmonary edema. An ECG can show all sorts of abnormalities. You can see conduction defects, QT, ST changes and T-wave abnormalities, so a variety of, of problems. Acute kidney injury is very common, and again there's some data from the military that suggests it affects around about a sixth of patients with, uh, with heat stroke. We know that Rhabdomolysis following a marathon is very common, very well described, but that often doesn't progress on to an AKI. The creatinine, of course, may well be raised because of the rhabdomolysis, the muscle breakdown, rather than the renal failure. But whatever the cause, the renal failure has been bad enough such that patients need renal replacement therapy. And if patients do need renal replacement therapy, I guess there's other benefits, other advantages as well. It might reduce some of the hyperpyrexia. It might help reduce some of the uh, metabolites of the muscle breakdown. And it might have some effect modulating the surge response, which seems now to be a part of the, of the heat stroke. Liver injury is common as well, and there are cases, again, where it's progressed to um, fulminant liver failure, and there are case reports of patients who've gone on to need a liver transplant.
I think liver failure itself causes other problems. It may well worsen the, the gut bacteria absorption and it can obviously cause the hypo and the hyperglycemia. Patients often have a very high um, lactate level and there are several reasons for that, partly from the liver dysfunction, partly from the organ perfusion and of course from the exercise and the anaerobic metabolism uh, as well. So if patients survive the initial episode, then heat stroke, as you say, is associated with a lot of long-term problems, a lot of long-term morbidity and mortality. And in the last few years, we've seen a lot of cases of neurocognitive dysfunction. Uh, so patients who remain confused or disorientated um, for months or possibly years after the, the initial event. And that's probably a combination of several things. We think the uh, the heat can cause some cellular damage and certainly the electrolytes and the, the fluid shifts around the brain um, can probably contribute uh, to that as well. Again, there's case reports of patients who just have very mild defects, so some people have very subtle changes in uh, attention span or memory or personality, but there are case reports of people who are much more severely impaired, including um, global dementia following what looked like a, an episode of heat stroke. We're certainly aware of lots of people locally, so down in the south of England, who just haven't been right really for several months after um, a race or marathon they've been involved with. We've also heard of a lot of neurological defects um, following an episode of heat stroke. Um, there are case reports again of people being paraplegic or paralysed and cerebellar dysfunction has been well described and, as I say, can often persist for a long time, some months or years um, after the acute episode. So we said right at the start that exertional heat stroke in lots of ways seems very similar to classical heat stroke and some of our data and understanding on exertional heat stroke and the sequelae come from um, data from classical heat stroke. If you look at the 2003 heat wave in France, there are now lots of reports of patients who have taken a long time to get back to normal and their functional status seems to be quite impaired for, as I say, a long time. Also, if patients survive a, an episode of classical heat stroke, then there's data to suggest that their mortality is 40% higher than normal and that increased mortality seems to persist for many years after the event. Their mortality is, or seems to come from multiple organ dysfunction, um, so cardiovascular, kidney and liver failure. The problem is that the patients who are at risk aren't necessarily detected by the standard lab testing and I think again that patients and the medical staff treating the patients need to be aware of the, the long-term risks um, that can happen after an, uh, an episode of heat stroke. And we said earlier as well that uh, patients may not be able to adapt to heat so well in the future, which might put them at an increased risk of um, another episode of heat illness. We talked a little bit about heat intolerance, and it may be that if a facility like this exists, that might be useful to guide um, the advice that we give, um, give the athletes in terms of exercising and taking part mm -hmm. in sport in the future. So, Ed, are there any other factors uh, that would put a patient at a higher risk of developing exertional heat stroke? So we know that, as you say, some patients seem to be at a higher risk of developing heat stroke than others, and there are some fact risk factors that have been identified. Um, these include conditions where you produce more heat normally, uh, like hypothyroidism, 
And certainly if you have a, a viral illness or febrile illness a few days before the marathon or the endurance event, um, you're more at risk of developing a heat illness. If you're dehydrated, certainly if you're older or uh, less fit than other runners, or even if you haven't slept well before the race itself, it seems that your risk of, of, of heat illness and heat stroke is higher. There's also some drugs that uh, increase the risk of a heat stroke, and these include um, antihistamines, beta blockers and calcium blockers also increase the risk, and any drugs that change skin, blood flow or fluid balance like, um, like diuretics as well will also change the risk. You earlier mentioned malignant hypothermia, and it's striking that much of what you uh, have stated has similarities with the clinical course of malignant hypothermia, albeit a different trigger. Are you aware of any research that links these conditions together? So you're right, there may be a genetic predisposition as well. There haven't been any genes identified yet as far as I know, but there are lots of similarities, so genetic, clinical and uh, biochemical similarities with, with MH. We know that about two-thirds of patients with MH have a mutation in, the, in one of the ranadine receptors. And this ranadine receptor is involved with um, calcium release from the skeletal muscle. It's important in muscle contraction. And if patients have an abnormal ranadine receptor, then the muscle contraction is exaggerated and the patients enter the hypermetabolic states uh, that we see with MH. In heat stroke, there's now a suggestion that another protein is involved the calcioquestrin protein, but in some ways similar to the ranadine uh, receptor in MH. Uh, calcioquestrin is a protein of the sarcoplasmic reticulum which binds the calcium and affects the way that the ranadine receptor works. There's been a mouse knockout gene model developed um, which doesn't have the calcioquestrin, and in mice who don't have this gene, then hypothermia, but also halothane, so a test for, uh, for MH, if you like, mm-hmm. seem to increase the, um, the mortality and the effects um, uh, on the mouse. So it suggests that if the calcioquestrin is abnormal, then it may predispose the person both to exertional heat stroke, but also to, uh, to MH. You're right that there's some, some biochemical changes um, that we see both in MH and heat stroke, uh, during the acute phases, and again, the suggestion that there's at least a crossover between the, the two conditions. And you're right that there's um, some clinical similarities as well, and there are again some case reports that heat stroke and MH can occur in the same individuals, which just raises the possibility, I guess, that they are similar diseases or at least share a similar underlying abnormality. Uh, there's a case report of a 12 year old boy who had surgery for a humeral fracture and developed MH, uh, recovered from that and then went on to play a game of football eight months later and developed what looked like heat stroke um, from which he died. And it appeared that, um, as I say, he and a lot of other cases have both heat stroke and, uh, and a sensitivity or, uh, to, to MH. So some people think that MH and heat stroke are at least on the same spectrum and some people think that if you've had an episode of heat stroke, you should also be tested for uh, MH. Um, we mentioned earlier that we always advise that um, you should avoid sucks for patients with heat stroke, and that's partly because of the, the crossover we think between heat stroke and mm-hmm. MH. So, given that cr- potential crossover, is there scope for dantrolene as a pharmacological treatment for exertional heat stroke? 
So dantrolene is a skeletal muscle relaxant and it's a standard treatment for MH, but it doesn't seem to have much effect or any effect on heat stroke. There's a few studies out um, that show that it might reduce the rate of cooling, but a lot of other studies that say it doesn't seem to have much of an effect and certainly it's not part of the standard treatment at the moment. There's a review from, uh, from 2005 that suggests that you could consider it for really severe cases of, of heat stroke or if the patients take a long time to recover, but the, the Faculty of Sports and Exercise Medicine don't recommend it at the moment as, as part of their initial uh, treatment. Certainly so seems that cooling is much more important than dantrolene. So moving forward, in your opinion, what do you think should be the next step in, in research uh, for this uh, very important uh, condition? I, I don't think we know enough yet about the risk factors or the causes of heat stroke, and certainly not enough really to advise the runners on the risk of them um, on an individual basis getting heat stroke. I don't think we know enough yet about the long-term risks and the complications of heat stroke. So it would be interesting and hopefully useful to be able to follow these patients up to assess their cognitive function um, and see if there's any long-term organ damage uh, from the heat stroke. And we could then use that to go on and advise other runners about the risk um, in the future. We mentioned that some runners are more at risk of getting a heat stroke again after one episode, so I think it would be useful to test all the runners and look at their heat intolerance, again to try and build up more information about um, who is at risk and that might be useful to guide athletes in the future about their individual risk of running and taking part in uh, endurance events. I think the problem with all of that is that a lot of runners would probably carry on running and taking part in sports even if they knew um, their individual risk of getting heat stroke. Sure. So moving away from research uh, I think the first step, or the first problem is that there are a lot of runners and medical teams that don't know enough about the, the risk of heat stroke and how important it is to recognise it and call patients early. So I think the first step will be to, um, to spread the message so that the runners and the athletes and the medical staff know more about it, um, both in the field but also in hospitals, the local A&E departments. So, it, can, I, can I finish by asking you, do you think there'll come a time when one can be pre-tested for exertional heat stroke? I think it's probably a long way off, and I'm also not sure how useful that would be. Um, I know that many runners will probably carry on running anyway, even if they knew uh, the risks of them getting heat stroke. I think the priority, rather than pre-testing, is probably just to be more aware of it, both the athletes and the medical staff, and also to be able to recognise it and start immediate treatment as and when it happens. Ed, thank you very much for an excellent insight into exertional heat stroke. Uh, it's an interesting clinical challenge uh, for the intensivist. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Okay. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Crit IQ and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of critical care education and quality assurance. Critique can be found at www.crit-iq.com and Crit Nurse at www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, all our podcasts are freely available on the iTunes Podcast Store.